Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear. My name is Peter Edenstart and with me, my co-hosts... Rachel Isbert. How are you doing, Rachel? I am good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. Really this good? Is, yeah, really <laughs> good. The last time we recorded, we didn't really have a clue what the reception was going to be like, but that we're surprised is a bit of an understatement, right? Yeah, I think astounded is a word that I keep using to you in messages. Just can't quite believe yeah. it. I mean, when we set out to do this, we didn't really know if there was a demand for what we were planning, but from the reception so far, it feels like maybe we're onto a good thing and we're really keen to continue shining a light on these films. And we really want to thank everybody for all the shares and the feedback and the kind words. Yeah, completely. I mean, I feel like I come across as a bit disingenuous on social media because I just keep saying to people, like, thank you so much and thank you for your support. And like, I don't want anyone to think I'm just saying that like off the cuff, like I'm generally like overwhelmed by how much support and all the feedback and the kind words. So yeah, thank you to everyone that we that has kind of wished us um, well with the podcast and sorry if we've missed any of you out. Um, and thanks for all the like the reviews and the star ratings and all those things. They really help establish us as a podcast. Yeah, we really appreciate it so much. So in the last episode, we had a little competition. What all you had to do was share the news of the podcast with the hashtag FragmentsPod. And we had quite a few people that joined in. And the lucky winner of Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion is... Kenoscope. So thank you very much for the share and we'll get in touch with you by DM so we can send the, the disc out to you. Yes, well done. Thanks. And for those of you who didn't win, there'll be a new chance at the end of, of this episode. Yes, we'll have more prizes coming up. Yeah. So with that said, maybe it's time to talk about this episode's film. What are we going to talk about today, Rachel? Uh, so today we're going to talk about Umberto Lenzi's So Sweet, So Perverse, uh, which came out in 1969. And its Italian title is, Peter? It's Così Dolce, Così Perversa. He's much better at the pronunciation than I am, so I just throw them over to you to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if any Italian listeners would agree with you, but there we are. You're not jealous, you're just bitching. What do you expect when I can't get my slice of cake in my own home? Klaus uses me in a way that's sick, so sick. He enjoys hurting me. No, you can't scare me away, Nicole. Isn't that what men always say? The first week, the first month. And then after that, what in the world would you do with a strange woman like me? At first, you were just an intriguing creature that I wanted to go to bed with. But everything has changed. Do you understand? Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! So obviously it might seem a little bit odd to say this for a film that's now approaching, what, 50 years old or is probably 50 years old now. Um, But we'll be talking in detail about the film and the various plot points. So there will be spoilers in this podcast. So why are we chosen to talk about So Sweet, So Perverse today? Well, I think in developing Fragments of Fear, we were both keen to discuss Shelley from the 1960s and we didn't really want to focus just on the golden period so like the italian thrillers that came before what people consider to be typically shallow so i guess yeah not t- tied to those archetypes so we're keen to tackle a 60s entry in our first couple of episodes and we thought umberto lenzi shally were kind of ideal candidates for discussion so his earlier shally are often not given as much recognition as his late as his later period work but yeah they're fantastic examples of the sort of era of the italian thriller and the reason behind our choice today of so sweet so perverse specifically was mainly due to it being and um, the lesser discussed entry of lenzi's shally 
Valley with American actress Carol Baker. And it also features quite a few elements associated with the Jalo at large that weren't present in Autopsy. So it's a nice contrast to our previous episode. Yeah, I agree. Like you said, these 60s film tends to be a bit overlooked. So it would be quite interesting to, to talk about a bit more in depth about them and see if there's not quite a lot there that could be discovered for those who, who are only sort of used to, to watching the, the 70s jelly with, with all the tropes that, that you're used to finding in those films. Yeah, definitely. Like it's nice to kind of explore kind of the earlier um, era of these films and yeah, as you say, there's lots to kind of un- unpack in these films and explore. So I kind of found even doing my notes and my rewatches for this one, finding so much to talk about. I was kind of surprised yeah. myself like at how, how much there is in these films. Because you kind of, people focus so much on those later period ones that you forget how rich some of these earlier ones are. Yeah, and also these these early ones are so instrumental in introducing aspects that, that are prevalent in the later Jelly as well. So from that point of view, it's quite interesting to to discuss them a bit more yeah completely so do you want to talk a little bit about umberto lenzi because you've already discussed him in the documentary all eyes on lenzi that was on the eyeball and on the tough ones release well umberto lenzi is a director that we'll probably discuss time and time again on the podcast as he directed a fair number of shelley quite a few of which don't really get discussed too often in the fandom in particular his early work with carol baker i found when I was speaking about his career in that documentary that I didn't really get a chance to talk about the early part of his career. So this is a good opportunity perhaps to delve into that. So yeah, I'm not going to attempt to talk about his whole career here as it take up the entire podcast. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about his career prior to his work in the thriller genre. So Lenzi was a prolific director. He worked in many different genres throughout the course of his career. People on the whole tend to be more familiar with his later work, particularly in the horror kind of exploitation genres. And as a result, he has somewhat of a reputation for quite shocky style cinema. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what he's most well known for, at least. Yeah, and he's he's often unfairly called a hack or seen as lesser than some of his contemporaries. Um, and he's often not really credited for his phrase into the Jalo, uh, which is a real shame as he made quality thrillers uh, throughout the late 60s and 1970s. Lenzi um, began his filmmaking career as a student of the Centro Sperimentale di Cinematografia in Rome, where he honed his craft. Um, prior to that, he was a law student. So again, as we discussed in our last podcast, uh, many of these directors were intellectuals. Uh, Lenzi, in fact, like Crispino, worked as a journalist for a period of time. And after graduating, he started out as an assistant director before making his directorial debut in 1958. And over the course of the 1960s, uh, prior to directing a Jali with Carol Baker, he had around 20 films under his belt. He made many different films. He was able to adapt to changing trends in cinema. And when I appeared in the All Eyes on Lenzi documentary, I think I said that I view Lenzi as somewhat of a cinematic chameleon because he could just turn his hand to any genre um, and rather successfully, which is evident when you look yeah. at his filmography, right? <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. So when you look at the earlier part of his career in the 60s, uh, we can see all sorts of genres in his filmography, uh, predominantly quite action-based uh, films, uh, such as peplums, spaghetti westerns, adventure films, and spy films. Uh, I think, in fact, he directed quite a few spy films in the 60s. I think there was like four in the space of two years. Okay. So yeah, he did quite a lot in that genre in the 60s. I think it's just, you know, post the 007 James Bond boom, there's like so many yeah. directors um, working in that 
that genre. So that'd be quite interesting to talk about, actually, wouldn't it, in the future? It <laughs> would. Delve into that, because it's quite under-discussed, like more so than other genres. So yeah, Lindsay was very much a film fan. He grew up with a passion for film. And I think for the most part, like that comes across in his films. Yeah, so prior prior to um, directing a chalet with Carol Baker in the late 60s, he did work in quite a few different uh, genres. So you know, he'd fairly established as a filmmaker by this point, knew what he was doing, uh, very adept at making films. Um, and then he comes in and he tries his hand at kind of making, um, not erotic thrillers, but kind of sexy thrillers, if you if you like. Before we continue to talk about Lenzi's 60s uh, thrillers, I thought we could talk a little bit about the context because of, of the 60s thriller genre, because I expect that most of the people who listen to this are familiar with the sort of cinematic origins of the Jallo with Mario Bava, but perhaps less familiar with the evolution of the of the genre throughout the 60s. Like we discussed in, in episode zero, the Italians have a much wider view of what they consider a, a thriller than most non-Italians do. And the Italians use a word called uh, filone. The filone is the Italian word to describe the the wider set of films. And this includes many more thrillers than non-Italian viewers would would consider gialli. So to all intents and purposes, the gialli filone sort of started with The Girl Who Knew Too Much in 1963. And Barber followed it up in 1964 with Blood and Black Lace. But what happened between Barber's films and when Dario's debut, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, exploded on the screens, made the genre a really hot commodity, is it's quite rarely discussed, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a real kind of gap between, yeah, because people will go, oh, Blood and Black Lace and The Girl Who Knew Too Much. And then there's this kind of gap of, I suppose, six years and then it goes on to Argento. So, yeah, kind of need to plug that gap. Yeah, because there were, of course, thrillers made in the wake of Barber's films. But you have to remember that although these films are now sort of acknowledged and as influential thrillers, they weren't particularly financially successful at the time, or at least not successful enough for a whole slew of films to be inspired by them to come along. So the Italian thrillers made in the wake of Barber's films can roughly be divided into sort of five, six different categories. There were the ones that took a clear inspiration from the German creamy films, Films that often featured like an elaborate criminal mastermind. And you could say that films like Hyena of London and The Embalmer fits in this category. Mm -hmm. And then you have the the Ten Little Indian style thrillers with um, A Game of Crime, Death on a Four Poster, A for Assassin. And then you have a few gothic thrillers that were inspired by the still quite popular gothic horror genre. Films like Marguerite's The Virgin of Nuremberg and The Murder Clinic. And then you had films with more, I guess you could say more artistic aspirations or it in lack of a, of a better word, we could call them sort of art house thrillers like Luigi Bazzoni and Franco Rossellini's The Possessed, uh, Damiano Damiani's A Rather Complicated Girl and uh, Julia Questi's Death Laid an Egg. And interestingly enough, these were among the most financially successful thrillers made in, in the 1960s. And then you have the sort of yacht thrillers that were often set on or around a yacht, more or less playing out in swimming gear. <laughs> Films like Top Sensation, Interbang, Sex of the Angels, and a few others. But it wasn't really until the success of Romulo Gurrieri's or Romulo Girolami's Il Dolce Corpo di Deborah, The Sweet Body of Deborah, that you can sort of start to trace a coherent movement towards what most people consider a giallo today. Because there had been earlier examples of thrillers inspired by Le Diabolique, Gastaldi's Libido, and the French-Italian co-production Diabolically Yours. But it was really off the back of the success of The Sweet Body of Deborah that Luciano Martino had a financial success 
it did really well. It brought in 580 million, and that was by far, at this point at least, the most successful Jallo up until that point. So Orgasmo follows in the wake of The Sweet Body of Deborah. Yeah, no, that was uh, really insightful. Um, and that really kind of helps put into context these 60 thrillers, because often, often we do just talk about them as the 60 Shelley without really considering how they all fit together. And there's so many differences. So I think that'll really help people when they're trying to get into into the, the Jali from the 60s, kind of work out what, what ones appeal to their sensibilities. So no, that was really great. Yeah, so I suppose we're up to the point now of Orgasmo after uh, The Sweet Body of Deborah. And prior to directing uh, So Sweet, So Perverse, this is Lindsay's uh, first foray into the 60s thriller in 1969. And this is his first collaboration with the American actress Carol Baker. Uh, Lindsay and Baker would go on to work together on three other films, So Sweet, So Perverse, which we're talking about today, as well as An Ideal Place to Kill, aka Paranoia. Um, a knife of ice. There's a wee bit of um, confusion sometimes when we're talking about these titles because a few of them have the same names because they were um, yeah. given different names in, in different territories. And I think, you know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about the cut maybe they've watched or the name of the film in their territory. So Orgasmo was Paranoia, correct? <laughs> Yeah, especially, I mean, in the pre-internet days, this was a real problem (laughs) to keep track of these titles. Yeah, I mean, I get confused myself a bit because you'll hear people talk about a certain title and you think it's like like paranoia, especially. I always have to really weed out which one they're talking about. Um, Exactly. Are you using the American title paranoia or are you using the Italian title paranoia? Exactly, yeah. So it gets a wee bit confusing, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so Orgasmo also starred Sean Sorel, who Jali fans will be more than familiar with, as well as Luke Castell, uh, a Swedish actor, um, who appeared in several Italian films throughout the course of his career. And Orgasmo shares quite a few similarities with So Sweet, So Perverse. Uh, tonally, they're fairly similar. Um, they deal with some of the same themes. Both films feature duplicitous characters who double cross one another and exhibit rather morally questionable behaviour. And that's all set against this affluent mid-century backdrop invoking some of the um, excesses associated with the 1960s and that sort of jet-set lifestyle that we typically associate with this type of um, Italian cinema. So Orgasmo released as Paranoia in the States. Uh, was hugely successful at the American box office. I think it grossed over a million dollars. And I suppose the success of the film prompted an immediate follow-up from Lindsay, which resulted in So Sweet, So Perverse, um, which I've just mentioned leaned into those elements that were so successful in Orgasmo. And with the casting again of Baker to, I suppose, appeal to American audiences and to capitalise on the success of Baker's role in Orgasmo. I'm just thinking before we continue, Mm -hmm. if if I could just say something about the man who produced so sweet so perverse because the film's produced by luciano martino and he's perhaps one of the most overlooked and unheralded players in in turning the genre into what we know and love i think yeah i definitely agree with that I'm, i'm not sure if i'm going too far with this but i'd say he's probably like the third most important man in jally after barva and dario argento so I'll, I'll go into why I think he's really important to the development of the genre, because as I said before, he produced one of the mo- most influential thrillers of the 60s in The Sweet Body of Deborah, a film that's certainly not getting enough recognition and one that I can see us returning to in the in the future. We will definitely explore that film in a future episode. Yeah, it was very successful and it was also a string of jally was made in the wake of it. So while 
Luciano Martino and his business partner Mina Loy didn't do it single-handedly. I think they certainly had a big hand in bringing many of the tropes that we consider inherent aspects of the genre. They brought those, like the jet set, where where it's often taking place among diplomats or on entrepreneurs or industrialists. They were at least partly responsible for bringing that side into the films because those earlier jallies, it wasn't as prevalent as it is in their films. And I think they also had a hand in making the international locations a big part of the films as well. I think more or less everybody who talks about Jali think about the international locations and that aspect of it. But they were the ones who actually brought that in uh, to the front. And a lot of time, other time, it was probably due to it being co-productions. I know for a fact that in the case of the case of the Scorpion's Tale, Sergio Martino's film, it was brought to Greece because they got tax breaks when they filmed in Greece. He also very involved in coming up with striking titles for the films. He often discussed ideas for the films with Ernesto Gostaldi, and he brought him titles to write the films around, from what I understand. And an extremely savvy businessman, and he was he was often quick to adapt to current trends. So he produced Mario Bava's The Whip and the Body, and quite a few James Bond-inspired spy films and westerns, and before he went on to the Jallo trend. And I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly which film it was that sort of made him take the the plunge and and do The Sweet Body of Deborah, because I, I would imagine with Luciano Martino that probably one film that was fairly financially successful that made him try his hand at it, but possibly um, diabolically yours, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure. And then when the Jallo trend started to die out, he moved on to the Polizioteschi and the sex comedies. When it came to following up the success of The Sweet Body of Deborah, um, he already had a script that was written by Ernesto Gastaldi. And Gastaldi had already written scripts for several thrillers like A for Assassin, which was initially a play, The Murder Clinic and Libido, which he also directed. And when it came to finding a director, Martina turned to Umberto Lenzi, who had recently finished, as you said, the very successful Orgasmo. When it came to So Sweet, So Perverse, Lenzi wasn't involved in the script at all because he'd been working on the war film Battle of the Commando. How this is the thing that I find a bit difficult when I'm always finding stuff about the script, the script for the film. It's like obviously Gastaldi wrote it, and I got the impression that Lindsay wasn't overly involved, but then Lindsay, being kind of a bit of an egotist, seems to like take quite a lot of credit for things that you're not entirely sure he was responsible for. Like that yeah. whole thing about the case that's modeled on, it's like, was that really Lindsay? Because to me, it felt like it would be far more likely to be Gastaldi. I think, from what I understand, Gastaldi pretty much wrote scripts on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in contact with Gastaldi for another project where I asked him about if he if he wrote with somebody or if he was given ideas. And he said he used to discuss the ideas with Luciano Martino, but seldom getting or never getting anything written really. He could get he could get a title at times. But it doesn't seem like Lenzi was involved in this script at all. No. He'd, uh, he'd been working on Battle of the Commandos at the time, so he didn't have time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the time when you look at the IMDB and you see these story by or names being added, that you see that they haven't worked together before. Mm-hmm. I think it was a lot of the time it was down to, to the films being co-productions and you had a quota that you had to fill with personnel from a 
from a different countries in order for it to be considered a co-production. Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? It's just it's just funny because that thing was in, in Kotsu's book and I just thought, like, fair enough if you read it off IMDb, but you're like, oh, I just presume it must be Lindsay taking credit for things that he wasn't involved in, but you yeah. just don't need to read it. And again, when they spoke about these films, it was, all, it was like often 35, 40 years ago and they often had a production rate, which meant that they made at least two films, sometimes more a mm-hmm. year, quite difficult to keep track of what you were you actually how involved you were in a particular script i would imagine yeah and i think it's always going to be difficult to really pinpoint who did what i mean you know it's like anything in film yeah you know, when you're talking about that length yeah. of time it just people don't quite remember things as they were or they get confused and people have yeah, like egos or whatever else so yeah yeah and sometimes i mean i'm sure he did s- some adaptations of the script or changed some stuff around but when it comes to the actual the actual written script i get the impression that gastaldi very much wrote the stuff on his oh yeah own. absolutely because at the end of the day you know gastaldi was a script writer whereas Lindsay was predominantly a director so kind of says yeah all. yeah before we get started with the film should we talk about a little bit about the public perception and where it's it's place in the genre i think we've touched upon it already that you know it's just the lesser known title of Lindsay's um earlier shally just predominantly i suppose nowadays because there's an English dub, but it's not available on DVD or Blu-ray. And for whatever reason, Lindsay Shelley just don't seem to be as popular. Again, partly due to availability, but I think also... I've seen like quite a few people like when they talk about these films go, well, they're not really Shelley. But I mean, like by our definition, they are. And like they're like, as you talked about... Very much so, yeah. Yeah, they, they have... You can see the beginnings of certain tropes that were um, utilised later on um, in this film. So I don't know if it's partly due to that. It's like like we said with autopsy, you know, people sit down and watch some of these Shelley and they expect certain tropes and criteria to be ticked off. And then maybe when, when they're not, or if they find out from a reviewer or something that, oh, it's not really worth your time because it doesn't have those things and they're put off. Yeah. Um, but I think most people just don't know it really, to be honest. Yeah. A lot of people know Lenzi from his cannibal films or from his crime films. And in comparison, these 60s Shelley seem quite tame and sort of almost quaint in a way. Completely, yeah. Uh, and I think that might put some people off as well. But I think there's a lot to these films. I really enjoy them. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I really enjoyed this film when I first watched it anyway. And like subsequent rewatches, I've really enjoyed it. But I've not seen it in a couple of years and watching it again over the last week or so. It kind of really strikes me like how enjoyable it is because it has this reputation with some people being like the lesser of the three or it's not very good or it's not going to violence or sex or whatever. But when you watch it, like I think it's incredibly well crafted great performances and there's some real talent involved with it every you know stage you know like the product um the producers we've talked about um Ernesto Gastaldi's um involvement really quality acting talent so yeah there's a lot a lot going on in um So Sweet So Perverse so I think it it, it does need a bit of reappraisal I think for sure sure so should we get stuck in do you want to tell people what the people that haven't seen it what it's about yes I will just give a short synopsis for the film So Jean, a wealthy French industrialist, is dissatisfied with his bourgeoisie Parisian life and his disinterested, frigid wife, Danielle. When Nicole, a glamorous American, moves into the apartment upstairs, Jean quickly becomes infatuated with her and embarks on an illicit affair. Nicole, at the mercy of an abusive relationship with her boyfriend Klaus, seeks solace in Jean. However, things aren't quite as they appear to be and Jean's desire to save Nicole blinds him to the Machiavellian schemes of foot involving those that surround him. Yeah, that's that's very well summed up. That's the thing I wrote. I just like using the word industrialist, I think. 
Machiavellian are my favorite words. Yeah, if you can get that in, it's, it's, it's always it a plus. Yep. So should we have a little rundown of, of the players as well who who's in there? You mentioned them, but we can get into a little bit more detail uh, about who they yes, are. Yes, we will do that. Well, unlucky me, I have to start by trying to say Jean Renault, who's played by Jean-Louis Trintignant. Very good. Uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. I took French for like six years but still struggle with that yes. surname it's difficult it's a difficult I think, one yeah it was the same i was like i, I can get the, the nyon bit but it's like the, the the rolling of the r's like that noise that you make in french that just comes on naturally to me it's hard yeah. but he's he's very good and he was fresh off winning the best actor award at can uh in 1969 for costa garvas said mm-hmm Chintignon appeared in Tinto Brass's Deadly Sweet and Julio Cuesta's Death Laid an Egg prior to appearing in So Sweet, So Perverse. Um, both films were released in the late 1960s and are seen as a bit more experimental examples of chalet, as Peter mentioned, you know, art house kind of variety of the 60s chalet. Um, they're very much infused with a pop art sensibility. Um, so they're, they're quite different to So Sweet, So Perverse. Um, yeah, this is probably the most straight up giallo that he's done yeah and i suppose like it's maybe more similar in tone to some of the kind of french films that he was doing around about the same time and post um his work in italy erica blanc plays uh jean's wife danielle uh, blanc is an actress that's been uh, really in countless italian genre films and she's got a rather striking look with her her red hair and her strong cheekbones and gap teeth and i believe that so sweet so perverse was her first real foray into the shallow um of course she was also in the Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, uh, Love and Death in the Garden of Gods, Human Cobras, Red-Headed Corpse, uh, Love and Death on the Edge of the ra- uh, of a Razor, I think what else, uh, a Dragonfly for Each Corpse, Erotic Games of a Respectable Family, and she was in Dario Argento's Dawn to Darkness, I think it was the episode called La Bambola. Yeah, so quite quite a few there. Yeah, and that's just her kind of thriller um, films, because she's been lots other than that. Blanc was always adept at playing morally ambiguous characters, um, and, and it's no exception in So Sweet, So Perverse. She'd actually, she'd worked with Lenzi before, two years prior in the Eurospy film, The Last Last Man to Kill, as well. Yeah. Yeah, and she's interesting as well, like many of Gastaldi's female characters, there's a little bit more to her than first meets the eye, but we'll get into that a little bit later yes, on. Yes, I think actually she's one of, the, like, I thought there'd be more to say about Nicole when I was writing my notes, but I think there's actually maybe more to say about Danielle. There's quite a lot going on with her character um, throughout the film. Yeah. Next person up is Nicole Perrier, who's played by Carol Baker, as you said, the American actress who'd she'd done a string of films in, in Hollywood, and she left the States in 1967 after a dispute that she, she made a lawsuit against Paramount and Embassy, so she wasn't getting any any offers or roles really and um, so sweet was her second film with Lenzi and he said that if I ever had him use it was her Carol Baker doesn't get the praise that she deserves I think because she really was the Jallo queen of the 1960s yeah completely and did quite a few films in the 1970s as well maybe not all of them were as were as interesting but she's not She's not really getting her due, I feel. No, she's not. And, like, yeah, considering that she was, like, the defining actress of the 60s in terms of Shelley, you'd think there would be more recognition of her work. And she was very competent in her roles. Um, She's a great leading lady and played a, a diverse range of characters. You know, she could play different sides of someone, which we'll, we'll see in, in this yeah. film. But I, I don't know if that's, again, due to these films not being as readily available as others, or maybe just because she's an American and people gravitate more towards 
you know, the European actresses, especially the Italian actresses. I don't know. Maybe she doesn't have that. I don't like using the word exotic, but, you know, the exotic beauty of Edwidge Fenech or something. It's kind of a bit of a mystery yeah. because, yeah, as you say, she's she's very good and she is like the defining actress of the time. So Horst Frank plays Klaus. Frank was a German actor who appeared in over 100 films throughout the course of his career. Um, in the 60s, he appeared in several westerns and was a fairly prolific actor in genre films um, in his native Germany as well as elsewhere and he, he kind of played you know the typical German you know steely German baddie that kind of thing especially like in westerns um, obviously not he obviously didn't play uh, an evil German in German films but yeah like in his <laughs> in his work outside of Germany they were the kind of roles that he, he typically played and I think that's quite common of a lot of German actors of the era and um, look at like Kinski's kind of roles in westerns and things as well yeah He's quite well known to Jello fans as well, with him appearing in Cat and Nine Tales and The Dead Are Alive and Eye in the Labyrinth as well. Yeah, he certainly kind of crafted a name for himself in, in the Jello. Yeah, easily recognisable and um, yeah, cause it, very good, often in fairly small parts. But Yeah, because he he's got a striking appearance, especially in these films where you've got a lot of kind of um, Mediterranean-looking men. He's got yeah. very, I, I noticed in this film, it's one of those ones where everybody's got very intense blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not just that about And then we just got a few secondary characters: uh-huh. the Portuguese Spanish Helga Lina, mm-hmm. who shows up in a small role as a early love interest of Jean's, and Beryl Cunningham, who's given the the standard thankless role for a black actress in in an Italian genre film, where they're sort of brought in to bring exotic flavour, but doing very little else. So basically, she's doing a striptease at a party, but that's about yeah, it. Yeah, very much kind of like the case of the Body Iris, you know where it's almost like you're like you said like yeah. i'm doing air quotes here exotic and they do a kind of slightly problematic dance in a nightclub and yeah it's not great um like we were saying like you kind no. of see her credited as a black stripper which isn't really you kind of wish they'd like they at least give her a name but yeah one of those unfortunate things so those are the main players and so should we move on to the actual film and talk a, a little bit about it the natural end to start in is to say that it's it's fair to say that So Sweet, So Perverse wears its Le Diabolique influences fairly fairly openly, wouldn't Very you say? Very much so. I think if you kind of can twig that that's where the film's going, then you're going to know how it unfolds. Um, it's, it's quite common for a lot of films, not even just Shelley, but just films of this era to kind of emulate it. I don't, yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like you read about these films and so many people compare them to that, which it's like evidently that's where it draws inspiration from. I'd say it's probably that one of the... One of the most single, most influential films on the shallow genre. Oh, yeah, I'd completely. Say, especially on these late 60s jet set or by the pool jelly or whatever you want to call it. Le Diabolique was based on a book by uh, Boileau and Narsajek, She Who Was No More. And famously, Clouseau managed to snag the screenplay rights in front of Hitchcock, who, who then later tapped the authors for, for his next project, Vertigo. Yeah. Um, but this film sort of... It, Slightly alters the setup where the wife and her husband's mistress conspire to murder the husband, but this ends up taking some unexpected twists and turns. Slightly alters the dynamic and adds a fourth player in uh, Horst Frank's Klaus and also adds the lesbian overtones and much more marked eroticism that were that weren't present in Clouseau's original. Yeah, and it kind of comes down again to Lindsay describing it as like a sexy thriller. He very much wanted to inject it with those um, erotic elements. So that's a departure away from that. And then we've got all these other elements like the jet set aspect and things. So it, it obviously has that component to it, but 
it's updated kind of for the for the late 1960s. The film is obviously set among the upper classes or the bourgeois in Paris, and the dolce in the Italian titles means sweet, and it's called so sweet, so perverse in English, but the dolce refers to la dolce vita, as in the good life from Fellini's 1960s drama, and the sort of carefree and shallow and materialistic lifestyles of, of the glitterati. And the perverse referring to the hedonistic and the sexually promiscuous upper classes, uh, underlined here by Nicole's sadomasochistic paraphernalia, but I'm sure we'll get back mm-hmm. to that. And I think it also is not a genre I'm, I'm terribly familiar with myself, but I think it also partly inspired by the Telefoni Bianchi films of the 1930s, comedies from the 1930s and 40s that were set in the upper classes, and the reason they were called Telefoni Bianchi was it was only the rich who could afford such luxury items as white telephones. And these films were often centered around the importance of family and respect for hierarchy and very much in line with the reigning fascist party line and very far from the reality of most Italians. And the neorealist films sort of sprung as sort of a reaction towards these films. So I think in a way... When we look at these Jet Set Jelly, they hark back to that era about the escapism of the hardships of the lower classes. And you you can even see some white telephones on display here. So I might be reaching, but I think there's potentially something there. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think that certainly, you know, ties back to obviously earlier kind of trends in cinema. When I sort of read about it, it felt like that this sort of fascination for the upper classes and what they're up to behind closed doors, it didn't just happen with Jali. It's been it's something that's been an ongoing interest in Italian cinema since since the early 30s. Yeah, and I think you're certainly right with that. I mean, kind of we talk sometimes about Jali a bit like in a vacuum. And obviously, you know, one of the um, kind of appealing components of these films is the fact they're Italian and they reflect, you know, Italian sensibilities and the history of the country and the culture. But, you know, like I said, it doesn't yeah. exist in a vacuum. It's like obviously come from other, you know, in order to get to this point, there's other influences, especially in terms of like, you know, societal influences, but also in cinema. And I think, yeah, that's kind of a natural progression to kind of where we're at at this point. I think that's a, a really valid point. I think that probably um, is an influence on, on So Sweet, So Perverse and films of this era. So we're first introduced to Jean as he drives around Paris in his 69 Canary Yellow Pontiac Firebird, um, where we then cut to Jean with his society friend's clay pigeon shooting. And we see Jean engaging in relations with Helga Linné's character Helena before heading home to his wife Danielle, who gives him a rather frosty reception, clearly aware of his indiscretions. Their marriage is obviously not a happy one, is disintegrated, and Danielle comes across as rather cold, questioning Jean's manhood. And Jean seems to be kind of desperately searching for this connection, despite the fact that he's um, been having affairs in different places and he's clearly wanting to connect with his wife and to go back to where they were but Danielle's just completely uninterested in um, the relationship and is fully aware that he's having um, these extramarital affairs but kind of as an arrangement that works for her and maybe not so much for him. 
So Danielle on the whole isn't really bothered by her husband's indiscretions. Um, they've got an arrangement and it works out quite nicely for her. They live their lives fairly independently of each other and come together when it's convenient um, or socially or for appearances sake. Uh, she's fairly cold as a character, certainly something of a realist and not a romantic kind of in these initial stages of the film. As she's an astute woman, she quickly observes what's going on with Jean and the various women that he sees. Uh, when Nicole comes on the scene, she's aware of what's going on with the two of them um, and is kind of watching from a distance so she's she's always aware of like what's going on behind closed doors so to speak so during this initial scene between Jean and Danielle um, she turns down his sexual advances and she says to him the Victorian image of a dominant male is a little out of place today and it's a nice little bit of dialogue as it acknowledges the changes between men and women during this period in these shifting gender roles. Danielle's a very beautiful woman. We see her pose topless in that scene and looking at herself in the mirror. And she's this picture of desirability and femininity. But she's completely disinterested in her husband. He says himself that she's only annoyed when he goes after other women because she's bitchy rather than jealous. She pokes fun at his virility. Um, and he wants to know what happened to the relationship, but she just isn't interested in giving him answers. And we have the sense that Jean's male ego has been bruised. Um, Helena, who he was engaging in exploits with previously, seemed to be using her feminine wiles a bit to get an extension of a loan for her husband. So there's a sense of male fragility to Jean as a character. He's kind of being used a bit for his money and the women on the whole don't seem overtly interested in him as kind of a sexual being. And Danielle certainly doesn't respect him as a husband. Jean's feeling emasculated and he feels like the women around him don't respect him. Him, they don't see him as a sexual being. Cue his new neighbour, Nicole, who comes in on the scene, who's this glamorous uh, blonde American, um, doe-eyed, uh, is very much a damsel in distress. So she immediately appeals to him and is kind of this light at the end of the tunnel for something more than his humdrum life and his dead marriage. Nicole seems to be an opportunity for him to be the hero and to save her from this apparently violent and abusive uh, Klaus, yeah. really. You can see why he's so keen to approach this this new mysterious neighbour. Yeah, you feel like he needs her just as much as she apparently needs him. Yeah. I mean, he feels very much out of place in today's society and he feels like a bit like he's on the scrap heap, scrap heap and there's all these independent women around him or like obviously women that need something from him, but they they're kind of one step ahead they know how to exploit him and he's not kind of the dominant male that he wants to be because the dominant male is now seen as something that's antiquated yeah um so he discovers that nicole's his new neighbor um and it's not long before that that he hears screaming coming from the apartment up the stairs so being the hero that he thinks he is he runs up the stairs or gets the lift up the, um gets the lift up the stairs and discovers droplets of blood um, on the floor by the door. No one answers the door. And when they then... He kind of goes snooping later, doesn't he? Yeah, because he, he pretends that he's forgotten where he's got the key for the upstairs flat since they viewed yeah. it. So he, he goes upstairs and he discovers this sort of sadomasochistic paraphernalia and surprises yeah, her. Yeah, because when he, when he hears her screaming, he obviously thinks there's a woman in distress. And I think at that point, he's not... As much as he wants to play the hero, I don't think he's he's fully aware that by saving her, he'll embark on this relationship with her i think there's some sort of morality there where he hears her being abused and wants to help her so yeah. much driven by nefarious reasons at that point but then he thinks it's appropriate to enter her apartment later on to kind of suss out what's in there which is obviously crossing a line and um, so he's got intentions yeah. but he just can't help himself from kind of going down the wayward path no nicole really ropes him in in a way by telling him about this this trauma that she suffered um 
the rape at the hands of Klaus and that she doesn't have the strength to break away from him. And that really sort of gives him a reason to to stay with her and to to save her, really. Yeah. Um, so he's very easily seduced by um, Nicole. I think he's so desperate to kind of form this bond, like the minute he not saves her, but, you know, in the aftermath of the apparent, like, abuse in the apartment, that he's kind of falls into this, essentially a trap where he's, he's just desperate for this excitement and desperate to fall in love yeah. that he'll just kind of go along with anything. Kind of a, a fairly de- melodramatic love story, really. Um, it's the kind of love that exists in fantasy. Um, and I think at one point he says to Nicole, at first you were an intriguing creature that I just wanted to go to bed with, but now I'm in love with you. And this happens so kind of quickly after after they meet that it just seems absurd, to, even by kind of film standards. Yeah. You just feel like it's not genuine. It's just Jean desperately trying to, to fall in love and find somebody that he's blinded to kind of the reality of what's going on. And yeah, and he talks about like, oh, he just wanted to bed her. But it's obvious that he does want something more than that because he's bedding, you know, Helene, he's bedding other women and he's not really getting anything out of it. No, I agree. It's, he's desperate to be somebody that matters in, in the relationship because he's obviously, he doesn't matter at all in his in his own marriage. Mm-hmm. So he needs that new context with another woman. And Nicole certainly seems like she could play that part. Yeah, completely. And I suppose Jean's vice is his penchant for the ladies, uh, which is kind of what results in his demise. But he needs that sexual validation in order to feel more masculine and to feel um, excitement in his life. And I think um, is that Helene says to him at the start of the film, at that clay pigeon shooting scene, she says, danger brings out the best in a man. And then her friend says, that's not what brings out the best in a man. And that kind of cements this link in, in Jean's character between his virility and danger and how even though, you know, Nicole's going out with this violent man, a rapist, like it doesn't really matter to Jean because he's getting his excitement, he's finding his love, he's finding all these things in that in that relationship. So there's, yeah, that intrinsic link between the two and he's just ultimately ruled by his masculinity. I think it was quite interesting with, with the Nicole character and obviously it's when she tells Sean that she's been raped by Klaus, but she also goes on to say that she keeps going back to him and every time I'm with him, I swear it will be the last time, but it happens over and over again. You almost get the impression that she's got these sadomasochistic inclinations with, with a gear and stuff and she almost seems sort of like a template for another Gestalt character. She's a bit like Signora Ward in The Strange Rise of Mrs. Ward, don't yeah. you? Yeah, no, I actually had that down in my notes as well. I think, you know, there's even just in that scene where we see Nicole's characters, well, I I don't know, because again, we don't know how much of it is fantasy or reality when she tells uh, Jean about what happened to her, but even like the camera work when it spins around on her face and like the discordant music, and it it does feel very much like that kind of sadomasochistic relationship and she's getting off a bit on it. It's less overt, Strange Face of Mrs. Ward, and less of a significant plot point, but there's definitely that comparison there, as I said, just from the filming, the relationship. Yeah, at this point in time where you sort of, where you've got no reason to to distrust her you trust her narrative up to this point mm-hmm. klaus seems like a sort of even rasimov character very much kind of an evil caricature so she's coming off like this like she's going to be this other woman if you watched le diabolique she even has the same name as simon signore's character in the clouseau film she's called uh, nicole mm-hmm. as well so you kind of immediately got that link between them yeah exactly at the beginning of the film it's like you said it's almost more of a sentimental drama where they're where Lenzi's trying to milk some shots of, of an elevator departing before we get to this quite brutal scene where, where Nicole tells Sean about the rape. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite a shocking sequence. 
quick disorienting cuts and uh, highly suggestive seashell <laughs> and um, some like red filters during the attack and then blue filters to illustrate the aftermath when she's in some kind of hospital or institution being looked after. Yeah, I mean, we've got some really interesting visuals in this scene. I think it's kind of the most visually interesting um, part of the film, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, the red lens image of Klaus's disembodied hands and like you said, the, the, the cut of the... Um, the scene cut into the shell on the beach as she screams but the images are somewhat at odds they feel very different from the rest of the film they feel very different from one another he said you've kind of got red then blue and it's a very different style um and i think in some ways that is used to highlight the fact that this is almost the work of fantasy or there's something not true about it like it never really happens because it's not depicted in any sort of realistic way it's not true to life. It's almost imagined in the cinematic, surreal sort of way. That's kind of how I yeah. interpreted it a bit because it is just so different. It feels like the work of fantasy from Nicole. I think that that is a plot point that can be debated. You know, what is the nature of her relationship with Klaus? It could well be grains of truth in it, or it could be the complete truth, but we don't really know that. But as, as you mentioned before, with the kind of the sexual kind of torture, sadomasochistic instruments in her apartment, there's certainly that element going on in their relationship it's just a little bit of official clue yeah. that things aren't quite as they seem with nicole's character can't then wonder if sean no. not think it's odd unless he's thinking it's something that klaus is using to abuse her but yeah it's not really a normal thing that anyone would have in their apartment no that's another interesting thing when you said about about her not being quite what she seems because lenza seems to put a lot of the characters in front of mirrors sort of reflecting perhaps different aspects of the personalities and them looking at reflections of each other rather than looking straight at each other. And that's that's used quite a lot. Yeah, that's certainly something I picked up on as well. And, you know, especially Danielle's character, we frequently see her looking in a mirror and I think there's almost like a self-reflective quality with her character, like Jean, and, you know, especially like later on in the film when things aren't really going to plan and she's got some sort of guilt. It's almost like her kind of looking into herself and she's got this moral consciousness where she's thinking about what she's done and you know like trying to look at this image of herself and confronting like who she is as a person and what she's done There's an erotic element to So Sweet, So Perverse. Um, Lindsay very much wanted to make what he deemed as a sexy thriller. Um, so there's a fair bit of female flesh on show. There's a few sex scenes. Um, there's depictions of lesbianism. And it sounds a bit wrong to describe lesbianism as an erotic element. Uh, but, you know, in these films, lesbian relationships or lesbian sex scenes or foreplay um, were kind of used as a way to sex up a film and to titillate an audience. And in these films, lesbians can often be depicted as rather predatory as well. And I think that's something that does apply a bit to Nicole's character. Not so much the kind of age difference here, though, because sometimes it's an, an older woman exploiting a younger woman and it's depicted in a different way than perhaps a male-female uh, relationship with a larger age gap. But there's definitely a fascination with lesbianism or a very male-centric view of lesbianism in these films um, on the whole. Um, and it's not the most sympathetic or nuanced kind of depiction, but very much a product of its time, to be honest. And it's a subject that you could go into in, in great detail um, to see how lit gay and lesbian characters are depicted in Shelley um, and the differences that exist between the two. But yeah, lesbian or bisexual female characters are very common in these sorts of films as we see the relationship between Danielle and Nicole. So Nicole, the character of Nicole has to do some quite heavy lifting in terms of seduction because she first has to seduce Danielle in order to bring about this plan and then in order to execute the plan, she has to seduce Sean, which proved to be 
quite easy, mm-hmm. but it's quite an elaborate it's plan. It's a very elaborate plan. I think, you know, stretches kind of credibility at, at times, but um, yeah, she pulls it off successfully in, in the film. Um, but she, she's a character contradictions and she does initially come across as rather fragile and sensitive and, and vulnerable. Um, and at this stage, she's the opposite of Danielle's harder nature. Because I think Danielle does come across as fairly unsympathetic at the start of the film, you know, the way that she she's, yeah. she behaves towards Jean. And at this point, like, we know Jean's having affairs, but she knows about it. And he just seems somebody who's so desperate for affection and she's withholding it from him. And we never really understand why that is. Um, so Nicole really represents the traditional meek woman that Jean's after to his traditional man, you know, that it's at odds with this new Italian man that, Nicole, um, that Danielle talks about. Uh, so Danielle's neediness really plays into his masculine ego. But as the film goes on, we get to see that our character is nothing more than a ruse to ensnare Jean. I think Baker does a really good job of playing those different facets of Nicole. Um, she's very convincing as that do-eyed damsel in distress. Um, and you can see why Jean would fall for someone like her. But then when we see this, when we have the reveal in the film that really um, she's kind of plotted against him and she's in cahoots with Danielle. I, I really like how her body language changes and her voice becomes um, more assertive. And in many ways, she does feel very feminine at, at the start of the film and very feminine towards towards Jean and her appearance and behaviour um, in her first iteration. And then she takes on this rather masculine persona where she's very much the dominant one in her relationship with Danielle. And we see this, this reverse in Danielle and um, Nicole's characters where Danielle then becomes the meek one so there's this this real shift. Danielle's the one that becomes vulnerable. Um, and you can almost see Baker um, harden when she takes on a true form, um, if you like, with Nicole. Um, so it's really interesting to see how her character changes and how Danielle's character changes as a result. Yeah, Gestalo was good at writing female characters that were interesting and that weren't just like a doe-eyed damsel in distress. Quite a few times that they, they actually sort of switch up you think they're vulnerable you think they're a bit more stupid or they're a bit more Mm -hmm. abused and then it turns out that they that they turn things around yeah they're kind of orchestrating everything that's happening oh yeah and yeah it does very much play to those those stereotypes and the audience kind of engages with those stereotypes and he turns them on their heads and yeah you see little things like the quotes that i've mentioned about like the victorian man and things which makes you kind of think that he's very much aware of what he's doing he's really playing with gender roles in a way that you know this was a period in cinema where people really were able to play more free with gender roles obviously they were they did to an extent before but yeah that's what's interesting about Shally is that you see all these deviations and and how characters female characters behave so again a question is is Jean a character who elicits sympathy I think it's an interesting question he's not unsympathetic i mean if you compare it to lydia bolik where the husband is clearly not nice person at all and more or less deserves to be killed um but that's not quite the case here i mean he's obviously unfaithful but as you've said um he's reaching out to his wife and even though he can't but he can't seem to get through and uh, and connect with her really yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah, he's not perfect, but he's kind of a victim of his circumstances. And yeah, his adultery is a vice, but you can kind of see how he's arrived at that yeah. just because he feels so kind of starved of affection. So yeah, you kind of inevitably do feel a wee bit of sympathy, especially as it goes on and see kind of what happens to him. And I think in many ways we can all relate to that self-destructive behaviour that he exhibits. I mean, he's just kind of obsessed with the pursuit of a thrill and the promise of something more and 
I think we've all yet yeah, times kind of had to kind of check ourselves morally and go, you know, don't do this or don't do that or, you know. Yeah. Just the one scene that almost stood out for me in terms of eliciting um, that sort of sympathetic response towards Sean was um, the one in which Sean and Nicole um, kiss at the party. They're kind of goaded into to kissing as part of this game. And there's almost this yeah. romanticism to it. Um, and you get the sense that in this moment, Sean actually really is falling in love with Nicole. And there's that kind of wee bit of cruelness because Danielle's watching it and she's obviously upset and she's obviously not just this kind of bitchy woman. She actually does feel maybe not a pang of jealousy, but, you know, something else. So despite she's been plotting, yeah. but there is like genuine emotion there. And then when you rewatch it, it seems almost worse because then you know that Nicole's not genuine either. Um, so you feel Jean's just getting a really having a really hard time of it, and he has these real emotions, and they're they're being played with, and I think that is why we feel sympathetic towards him because he just seems to live quite a sad, um, unfulfilled life. Yeah, uh, there's a sense of ennui that permeates through the film, um, which is perhaps exemplified by Jean when he says at the start of the film, even more exciting is knowing that it keeps getting harder and harder to feel excited, but still bringing it off every time. So that kind of exemplifies with his character, this idea that he like is constantly trying to get a thrill and everything feels quite like dead inside and he's constantly trying to feel something. And this is kind of what leads him down that road. And then there's another time where he says, life is so boring these days that even the slightest hint of mystery and then he, then he trails off and that's in a conversation between Jean and Nicole and it's it's evident that both Jean and Danielle are characters that are, are fundamentally bored with their own existence um, and Nicole's character offers them escapism and excitement from the confines of their dying marriage and in many ways that is just a fantasy and that's what's almost interesting about the film is how much empathy that we have for the pair of them and um, because they aren't particularly sympathetic characters on paper they're both very much driven by their own desires and are happy to kind of shaft other people to pursue that hedonistic lifestyle that they feel i'd say almost entitled to which you could argue is a byproduct of their position in society and the, the entitlement that they feel in many ways so sweet so perverse is about the games that bored privileged people play and i think there's certainly a critique in Lindsay's film um, of these sorts of people. At the same time, you're indulging in the glamour of these sorts of lifestyles. And there's a sort of fascination yet repulsion with these sorts of people. And that's something that I guess still applies even today. Yeah. And I think that, again, going back to those Telefoni Bianchi films from the 30s as well, that, that kind of fascination and the revulsion of these people that are living much better life than you are, but at least you can feel sort of morally superior to them in yeah, some ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. No, I think, yeah, that, that does really tie nicely to it. Um, and that's something, it's kind of a theme that we can all relate to. You know, you, you, you can call back to those films, as you said, you can see it in Jali, you can see it now, it's that, that kind of class envy or envy of money. Because I suppose it's their wealth that's really being targeted here, isn't it? And like, there's lots of upsides to being of money, but fundamentally, it's their money that's attracting attention. And it's, it's why Nicole is exploiting Jean, and she's in some ways very much driven by her own greed. And and the lifestyle that they live is is very desirable. And Danielle wears these this fabulous red sequin dress, and they go to decadent parties yeah. with their their glamorous friends and partaking clay pigeon shooting and all these kind of things like jet skiing. Um, so I suppose there's definitely an appeal to their lifestyle. Um, but on the flip side, when you see how these people spending their money in such an ostentatious way, um, I'm sure for a character like Nicole or Klaus, they feel resentment that these people have so much, but they really just squander it and live very hollow lifestyles. 
Uh, so yeah, there's definitely that message that money yeah. doesn't buy happiness or security or lead to fulfilling relationships. But I wouldn't say it's a really acerbic critique of class or money, but you can certainly see it in there. Yeah. Lenzi himself has actually called it like an elitist social aid with no moral values, no ethical principles, and that followed only the call of money, and with it came the sex and the bore decadent perversions. That's pretty damning. Yeah, pretty damning. That's what's kind of interesting, yeah, when you think of Lenzi as a filmmaker, people think he just makes schlock, but then obviously there was, you know, this almost political component or, you know, social rumination in his work. No, he's he's often, like you say, he's often dismissed for for just being a journeyman director and uh, working in which, whichever genre, but it's perhaps not the, the most reflective or the most societal critique among his peers, but there's, there's certainly stuff there. Yeah. yeah, I'd say so. I, th- I still think it's the first time I thought I was quite surprised when he was killed because you sort of, or at least I thought it was going to be Danielle who'd be killed off. And he's a big name actor, so you don't expect those people to be killed off either. No, do you? and you see this dynamic that's been built between Sean and Danielle and Nicole. So once his link's broken, you kind of wonder where it's going to go because at this point, we don't know that there's this connection between. Nicole and Danielle and Lindsay has to convince us of their relationship and make the second part of the film engaging enough. Yes, with with Sean dead, the film plays with the notion of him being being alive, much like Lydia Blick, when it's in fact, it's just Nicole and Klaus gaslighting Mm -hmm. Danielle. Yeah, we then come into this idea of madness and is Danielle being driven mad? And it kind of takes on this almost... um, gothic style danielle feels like she's being haunted by the ghost of sean without sean she becomes very dependent on nicole and nicole frequently accuses her of being crazy being hysterical so as you said you know she's being gaslit and female hysteria is a very prominent theme throughout shelly um and we talked about that in our last podcast on autopsy um and this makes a bit of a change though probably not going to be the last (laughs) time either But this makes a bit of a change because those accusations of Danielle being an unhinged hysterical woman are instead not coming from a man, but they're instead they're coming from a woman. So it's quite interesting that Nicole's yeah. manipulating in that way. It's a bit of a different take on uh, female neurosis in the genre. And yeah, her supposed madness is, comes from seeing all these possessions um, that belong to Jean. Um, and I like how we, we see all those objects being used by Jean prior in the film. So we see him with his razor, we see him with his gun. So yeah, we've got that kind of visual callback. Um, to all these things associated yeah. with his character. Yeah, much like um, Vera Clouseau's character in Le- Lydia Balik, Danielle later seems to crack under the pressure when when her and Nicole finds these signs of Sean being alive, like I said, the cigarette case and the gun and the electric racer and the writing on the mirror, you will die too. And then they dispatch of her in quite a clever way. At the end, we have Nicole and Klaus, who in fact turn out to be husband and wife, are taking off on an airplane, but they're watched by the police commissioner, so they they didn't get away scot-free. And from what I understand, Lenzi actually changed the ending Uh somewhat from from what was conceived by Gustaldi and suggesting that their freedom would be sort of short-lived with with the commissioner being there. Which is, it kind of ties in quite nicely to all these ideas about morality and your moral conscience throughout the film. It feels that that's a fitting ending and it hammers that point home quite effectively. And I like the idea that we've gone from Danielle, who seemingly has been haunted by her husband, to 
Nicole, who's now going to be haunted by what she's done and the murders, and she'll never be able to enjoy this lifestyle and the money that her and Klaus have run away with. So it feels like justice has yeah. been served to some degree. And and I think as well, um, Trintignon and Erica Blanc, like they do such a good job with their characters, and they've been written really well by Gastaldi that because we have this sympathy for them, as we've discussed numerous times, that we feel like they do deserve like some sort of justice, or we don't want this really despondent ending. We want something good to happen that you know, shafts uh, Nicole and, and Klaus. Because fundamentally, the Renauds were something of a, a dysfunctional couple, um, put it lightly, but I mean, their marital yeah. were very much exploited. Um, so there is a touch of sadness at the way things uh, turned out. But it brings it to, a, to I think, a, a satisfying ending in a way. Yeah, I, like, I think the ending works really well. And then you've got the plane, was it a Pan Am plane jetting off, which is just always the perfect ending, isn't it, when you end on a... On a plane. Yeah. So are we ready to move on and talk a little bit about the production history and other aspects of the production, yeah. do you think? So the film was produced by, as I said, Luciano Martino with Mina Loy, and, and it was a co-production between the Italian Zenith Cinematografica, Flora Film, and Tritone Cinematografica, and the French Sedic and the West German Rapid Films. And this was one of the first films that Sergio Martino's name uh, appeared an early credit as an executive producer. And again, it just goes to show that Luciano Martinez's productions were so important in, in this case, Sergio Martino cutting his teeth uh, on here and the sweet body of Deborah must have been vital to the development of his very successful thrillers. Um, and it was reported in Variety on March 12, 1969, that Carol Baker had signed up for a new Umberto Lenzi film called So Sweet, So Perverse. And I haven't been able to find any exact production dates, but it was likely filmed during the late spring and early summer of 1969. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about where it was shot, Rachel? Um, yeah, I, I can talk about that. Uh, so in 1970, in an interview with Luigi Cozzi, Lenzi stated that the film was shot in a hurry. Um, and as a result, the exterior shots in Paris were shot by hand to save on cost and time. Obviously, the Parisian setting exudes a certain quality. Um, it's very much associated with wealth and luxury and the glamorous villas and apartment buildings are really accentuate that moneyed aspect of the film that we've talked about. And we have a fair number of rather nice travelogue style shots, mainly when Nicole and Jean begin their trysts. So we see um, Parisian landmarks such as Notre Dame and the Eiffel Tower. And we've got some lovely Parisian Art Nouveau style architecture on display. You can see all those wonderful organic shapes, um, often in the ironwork of the, of the gates and railings. Um, and at one point we see a long shot of Nicole enter through a door and you can see she's at Square Wrap by the Laverat building in Paris, which again is renowned for its Art Nouveau architecture. And again, these prestigious addresses in Paris are another example of the wealth that these characters hold and the elite circles that they run in. And give Lindsay his credit, despite the limited time they had to film the Paris locations in, um, that French prison feel really comes, comes across throughout the film. And I don't think it's one of those chalets that like supposedly take place somewhere, but we never really see the characters inhabit those spaces. It's it's more like, you know, when those ones you've got establishing shots, but here, you know, you do see them in, in their Parisian settings. And then yeah, there's other sure. locations, you know, the villa where the clay pigeon shooting takes place. That's been fe- that was featured in Lindsay's third shadow as well. Um, an ideal place to kill, aka paranoia. Um, and it was also used in so um, the sweet body of Deborah. The other villa that's featured in the film that Nicole and John reside in for a short period is located in Punta Alla in Tuscany. And those scenes were shot in the home of a Milanese industrialist who kindly allowed uh, Lindsay to film there. And I believe that was in exchange for meeting with Trontagnon and. Baker. 
And I'm not entirely sure with this one, but I believe one of the scenes at the film's end takes place in the lobby of the Hilton Cavalieri in Rome. Um, Countless films during this period were shot there, um, either in the lobby or the suite upstairs. Um, And I think you can see the kind of distinctive spiral staircase in a bit when she's on the phone. But I'm not 100% sure. I think I'm pretty sure it is. So yeah, some of the locations. And all the interiors were shot at De Paolo's Studios, which is Rome's second biggest studio. So pretty standard, right? Yeah. uh, Quite a lot of the the sort of less prestigious stuff was shot at De Paolo's, whereas the the more highbrow cinema (laughs) was shot at Cinecittà. In terms of the film's fashions, uh, we've got classic touches of 1960s psychedelia. Some of the outfits that Nicole wears in particular are very evocative of this, like the swirly black and white trouser suit she wears and the orange, green and brown tapestry waistcoat and trousers she's seen in at the party. And another almost pop art-like bit of fashion in the film is the wigs that Danielle wears um, when we're first introduced to her character. You'll find that it's fairly common for characters in Shelley to wear wigs. Anise Navarro often wore lab wigs in the film she appeared in, particularly Death Walks on High Heels, uh, where she wears this amazing metal wig, um, not too dissimilar to the one worn by Erica Blanc. That during this period and in these sorts of films, wigs were very much a fashion accessory and a way to elevate an outfit or really reinvent oneself. And that idea really lends itself to the shadow where characters are often masquerading as someone else or as someone or are somewhat duplicitous in nature um, and in So Sweet So Perverse you'll often see Nicole in various pastel colours such as pale pinks and blues to accentuate her almost virginal innocent nature there's often a stark contrast between her wardrobe of, and that of Danielle who's often dressed in striking clothes such as the red sequin dress um, and then of course this switch she switches to black in her um, funereal style Pouchon's death as Nicole starts to wear um, rather vibrant suits and hats and accessories like that the director of photography was Guglielmo Mancori, who'd previously worked with Lenzi on Orgasmo, and they would shoot a total of nine films for Lenzi. I'd say it's it's well shot. It's not mind blowing cinematography. It's very it's serviceable. That's a good word to describe it. it or am I no, being I too that's harsh? A good word to describe it. I think, as we mentioned, that almost fantasy like scene where Nicole recounts what happened to her with Klaus is the only bit that really kind of stood out for me in terms of quite interesting cinematography. And there's that other shot that you got with Helga Lynn's like character where you know it's a close up on her face and she's framed rather nicely with her earring and things. But um, there's a few shots yeah. like that. But I think on the whole, like you know, in a genre that has so much wonderful cinematography in it. It's, it's, yeah, quite run-of-the-mill, isn't it, really? Yeah, and edited by Eugenio Alabiso, who collaborated extensively with both, both for Luciano Martino on his productions, but also with Lenzi. And he was something of a, almost call him a, like a VIP Jallo <laughs> editor because he worked extensively with Sergio Martino, with Lenzi. He edited The Fifth Chord, Case of the Bloody Iris. So excellent looking films yeah. there on his, uh, on his CV. And if we're going to talk about the music, it was written by Riz Ortolani and it's sort of centered around this bombastic, almost, I've, I almost think it's a little bit Bond-like uh, ballad, uh, Y, which is performed by British singer J. Vincent Edwards. And the rest of the cues are mainly variations of, of the theme with, with a flute. But there's also a couple of sort of up-tempo shake themes for the part scene, a more slow classical sounding love theme and some suspense cues as well one with organ and a quite jarring guitar and uh, parts of the soundtracks were later recycled for Lenz's 1972 thriller Seven Blind Stained Orchids as well um a cover of which is our title theme for the podcast exactly 
by the those are so it all ties together and um, it all ties together yeah I, I think you're you're right there about the james bond desk and in music I, I didn't really think about that on watching the film but yeah that's certainly evident i found it quite jar- jarring at times to have kind of such strong vocals in a film like this i'm used to it being more like subdued yeah. or whispers or it, it's not so prominent but here it does feel like quite a like when the music hits at the start I, I remember thinking oh, that's quite surprising. It's not not always used to. Yeah, perfectly serviceable the music as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a nice um there's some really nice cues here. I've listened quite a lot to this mm-hmm. soundtrack. Probably not one of my favourite ones, but it's it's very I think it's very good. Yeah, it's quite um, it's quite um evocative. It's quite emotional almost at points. I think it um yeah. kind of reflects what's going on thematically quite well at times. The film was um, the film received an eighteenth certificate in December nineteen sixty nine. It was released in cinemas shortly after. Generally when, when we talk about box office figures, it will be Italian figures because it's quite difficult to find out how these how these films did abroad. So Sweets made four hundred and sixty nine million lira at the box office in Italy. And with that, it was it was actually more slightly more successful than Orgasmo, which made four hundred and twenty five million lira, and which opened earlier the same year. And one of the better performing jelly of the year, uh, the most successful one was Lucio Fulci's um, Una sull'altra, or One on Top of the Other, which made eight hundred and sixty seven million lira at the box office. This might be a little bit self-indulgent for me as a Swede and our Swedish listeners, but the film actually opened in Sweden in September uh, 1970 as Mörte i Skräckens Hus, Meeting in the House of Terrors. That's a good name. Yeah, which I thought was quite fun because I know Argento's films opened here, but I don't think all that many Jali made their way into Swedish cinema, so I thought that was quite an interesting little tidbit. Lenzi would obviously go on to direct several more thrillers, but we're not going to we're not really going to talk about them now, we're are we? We're going to save that again for the future, I imagine. Yeah, we're going to have to stay at this for we, quite a while if we're going to get through all these are. films I, that we say we're going to come back to. I think we're just trying to be careful about how much we go into other films on the podcast. We kind of want to keep each episode centred around, you know, that film in particular and a bit about the production history or background yeah. of certain characters that were involved, like all that kind of wonderful stuff that Peter did at the start about, you know, Luciano Martino. And I, I know like as well, some people are just kind of working their way through these films. So they don't really want to hear spoilers for other films when they're focused on one. So we'll, we'll try and be careful about that. And I think we're more likely to talk about films that we've talked about in the past. So like, yeah, you heard a few references to Autopsy, but um, yeah, we're not going to kind of go too much into other things. So do you think we're ready for some final thoughts on So Sweet, So Perverse? Yeah, I think we've covered um, most of the elements that we wanted to discuss uh, tonight. Um, so do I. Apparently, Orgasmo was Lenz's personal favourite out of his early thrillers, probably down to do with the fact that he wrote yeah. it as well. But I, I think it's a really enjoyable and stylish thriller, and it's a great example of the 60s thriller that helped shape the genre that we Absolutely. all love. And it really lends itself yeah, to rewatches and carefully kind of crafted, so you can kind of pick up on little details kind of after you've watched it the first time. And it does hold up quite well, I would say, despite the kind of more overt like 60s elements in it but again it's that classic um story isn't it it's that classic thriller template um timeless yeah i think i mean lens is always he's always good at making his films quite 
they're not standing still. He's sort of constantly moving forward. So even though it's on paper, it's it's a quite it's a fairly quiet first act but you're still engaged and it's still moving along so the viewer isn't losing interest or at least i'm not losing interest even though it's there's very little in the way of thriller elements in the first yeah, I think, act yeah, because the characters are fairly engaging it kind of ticks along rather nicely and you feel invested in them and then just they go through yeah exactly and i think many people dismiss these 60 thrillers because they lack the familiar tropes uh, that you're sort of looking for. But saying that, I can I can quite easily imagine this exact same film, but starring Edward Fennec, Susan Scott, George Hilton, and even Rasimov, and it would be a classic. Exactly. I could definitely see that. Yeah, there, there are a lot of elements here that I think uh, would appeal to people if they only had a a chance to see it on a on a more convenient format because at the moment it's it's quite difficult to to see this film unfortunately and that's been the that's been a problem over the years with Lenzi's 60s jolly yeah and like you say like with a more kind of traditional martino style cast i think it would be a lot more popular i think as well it suffers so to speak from the fact it doesn't hit those beats that people associate with the genre so you know like a murder or some sort of set piece every you know, like I think Argento said it was something like every nine or 13 minutes, you know, like you had to have some murder or something happen. Yeah. I think we don't have that here, but I feel like if, yeah, it was cast with those actors that you mentioned and there was a few more set piece moments, then it would probably be actually really popular. I think so too. We really hope you've enjoyed listening to, um, to us going on about So Sweet, So Perverse and Hopefully you find something new on a rewatch or if maybe you haven't even watched the film yet, but hopefully you will enjoy it. We have a new competition for episode two. Uh, Las Vegas DJ Jimmy Gonzalez has very kindly provided us with a few copies of his video mixtape and we're giving one away this episode. Um, it's entitled Last Night a DJ Took My Life, uh, which is on Blu-ray and it's different shallow soundtracks mixed with visuals from Very Shally and it's really well done, very cool. Um, I imagine anyone that's into these films will really appreciate um, the love that's gone into making this mix. Um, and if you're in the UK or Europe, I believe, um, it's available from Silo Wave. Um, so if you don't end up winning the competition, uh, head on over and support this great release because um, it's really, really uh, worth having. And it's perfect for parties. And I think I will personally be chucking on at Halloween um, as something to go on at the background. Um, so if you want to win that, simply um, write a post with the hashtag FragmentsPod so you can give us a bit of feedback or just have that in your, your post and we'll check them all and we'll pull one out of the hat. And you can give Jimmy a follow on Twitter at Spacetunes. We're also really grateful if uh, you take your time and rate and or review us on iTunes because that helps us reach a wider audience as well. And you can follow us on social media at Facebook, um, FragmentsPod, or Instagram, FragmentsPod as well. And you can follow our personal Twitter. So you are at Signor Ward and I am at Rachel underscore Nisbet. So you can find updates um, there. And we'll be continuing to share what films we're going to be covering in the podcast in the future. So if you follow one of those accounts, then you'll, you'll get updates so you can watch the film in advance if you choose. Exactly. And if you want to reach us by mail, you can reach us at fragmentspod at gmail.com. The fantastic music you can hear playing is by Ozarks and you can find all their music on castleosarks.com. We hope to have you back for the next episode and until then, thank you very thank much. Thank you, goodbye.